Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. All right, today we're in Luke 20. It's occurred to me as we've been since, you know, much earlier in Luke, this trip towards Jerusalem that we arrived last week. Jesus is now teaching in the courtyard. And I'm just going to reread the beginning of the chapter. I won't dig into it too much because we did last week. Now, it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel um, that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us why, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Or who, who is he who gave you this authority? But he answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing and, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for we are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So uh, just as we get into this chapter, this chapter is all about authority and, and arguments and Jesus engages with people. Luke packages it into one kind of teaching. Um, but I got to tell you, the more I go through this, I'm remembering that Jesus is doing all of this because he loves us. And part of when, what he says in love to these people and, and the way he interacts with the scribes and the Pharisees and telling us to beware of them at the end of the chapter He's doing this because he loves us, because this is a problem. This is how humans operate. This is what humans do with religion. And to warn us of this, again, I think all of this is being done in love, and it's being recorded by Luke in love to warn believers against this kind of thing. And there's a balance to it all. But again, it's a lot of arguments today, and some of you love apologetics. Um, I, you know, I, I, I get the tone that Jesus is doing this because he has to. Like, he didn't engage the Pharisees. They came to him. He just deals with them as quickly as possible so he can get back to teaching. Notice in chapter 1, I didn't highlight this this last week, part of what he's doing is preaching the gospel. Well, what's the gospel without the crucifixion? And the good news of Jesus Christ is that everyone has access to the kingdom. Again, it's a tone of love. He's telling the crowds, you can all be holy. You can be made righteous by God. And all their, the only question left is, well, where's the sacrifice that's going to help make that happen? So Jesus is teaching the gospel well before the cross. And they, they go hand in hand for us. Uh, obviously, it's all part of the story. But the good news is this open door invitation to the wedding feast. Jesus shows the crowd in this first answer. Uh, we covered this last week. The priesthood is utterly unable to answer the big questions that matter. Was John from God or not? They can't even say that. And, and in, didn't, in not being able to answer the question, he actually answers the question of authority. Well, if you guys have the authority to question me, you should be able to answer this question. Is, is John from God or not? And in their inability to answer that question, um, God, Jesus has dealt with but also shown or held up a mirror to how much authority these people actually have. Religious elites, re folks that love wearing robes in the courtyard, Folks that love to be seen or heard. We were at a, 
a pro-life uh, dinner, Steph and I were, and they were doing a silent auction and all that sort of thing. But you could clearly identify the people who love to be dressed up as a pastor. They wore little black outfits with little white squares in the middle, and they walked around, and they accepted how people treated them. You wouldn't believe, and I'll, I'll just tell you this, the, when people find out that I teach the Bible on Sunday mornings and that people call me pastor, they treat me different. And you're going to say, well, in this world, probably treat you bad. No, there's a certain like honorific to people of the cloth, so to speak. And when you run into these folks, there's a temptation in that, which is to enjoy it. And it is enjoyable. Honestly, we were at Universal Studios and the security guard there is like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, well, you know, I teach the Bible. I'm a pastor. And he went off and got us like free cut through the line passes. <laughs> and I got to admit, that's a temptation because you could walk around being like, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. I don't, what kind of, will you give me a deal on the food? Maybe I don't have to tip at the restaurant because I'm a pastor. And it, it, there is a temptation there when people treat, even people that aren't following God, there's a certain regard and respect for it. Like if you're going to rob somebody, don't rob the nun, right? We have a certain regard for people like that because they dress up and they own it. And, and so there's this, this way that Jesus is dealing with them and, and they're concocting ways to roast him. We know that. There's an there's a ill heart with these folks. And, but that doesn't mean that everybody that serves in the ministry has that heart. It's a temptation to be wary of, but it is something to be wary of. And I think that's why in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have these stories about authority. And where do we get authority and where do we get it from? And it's a major question of the faith and how we deal with it. So as we go through this today, um, we, will, we will be packing this up. So um, be that as it may, um, as they prepare to roast Jesus, and I'm using that term intentionally, Ezra talks about the plan for the temple and, and what it looks like. Ezekiel talks about the plan for the third temple and what it looks like, and it's mirrored by what's happening here. Ezekiel 46.2, the prince, that's Jesus, shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand at the gatepost in the outer courtyards. And the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. And in this case, that's kind of, they're actually preparing Jesus for an offering. They're testing him to see if he's pure and if he's spotless and if he's without blame. So this verbal dialogue that we have in chapter 20 is preparing the sacrifice. And what they're, what they're finding out is they can't, they can't find any fault in this guy. Now, when they took a little lamb before the Passover, they would inspect the lamb and they'd inevitably find faults on it. And then they'd make them buy the more expensive temple land. This was part of the thievery that Jesus got upset about. But with Jesus, they test him with everything they got, and they got nothing on him. And my hope after we get done today is that everybody in this room, when somebody tests you on your apologetics and your theology, you feel confident that you can come out of it just as spotless as Jesus did, and that we get techniques and ways to do that. Primarily, we look more like Jesus when it comes to how we deal with these questions. So Jesus has proven himself over three years. We should note that too. If they can't see the miracles he's done over three years, who are they to question this guy? I mean, honestly, he's done more than enough. If folks can't see the authority in Jesus, they're going to also miss the love, the joy, and the peace, and the hope in him too. When people question God, they usually question God's authority. Who is God to do this or say this? What kind of God would do this or make this happen or make this rule? But when you question those things, I think in the flesh, you also miss who is God that loves this much? 
How is it that God can give us this much joy? How can we get this much peace in our soul by serving this God? And we miss the peace and the joy and the hope if, all, if we get stuck on the authority. So that's the danger of chapter 20. Well, Jesus is boss man, and then you can get caught up on boss man. And you forget that he's doing all of this in love. For sincere seekers, over the last three chapters, we saw that the sincere seekers, Jesus had more than enough time for those people. He would sit down with them, he would chat with them, he would talk with them. But for insincere people and selfish people, man, he just dismisses them. And there's a, a total authority to this. So he models how we ignore the opinions of the self-righteous. And he just showed us that in the first eight verses. But in, in verse 9, he now gives us a parable just in case we missed the point. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. How long will Jesus be gone? We don't know. Just a long time. And at, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and they treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and they cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Probably. They will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned amongst themselves. There's no coincidence that verse 5, they reasoned amongst themselves, is the exact same language that we see in, verse, in the parable in verse 14. He's telling the crowd who he's talking about. They reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come and let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? a good question. He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. This is the most direct, this is barely a parable. Like, this is very direct. He's just replacing some words, but it's key what he's replacing. The tenant farming was very common at this period of history. You'd have rich people that barely touched their fields. They would own the field, and then they would get other people to work them. And this was just a common economic arrangement. Nearly all of Romans living around the world were granted land by Caesar. And so this is part of the Roman Empire and how it operates. By the way, how the Roman Empire operates enrages the servants that are, that are called in to work on these lands. So you got all these Jews working all across Israel, and they don't bear any of the profits of their work. So this is something that is under the skin of the, of the Jewish people in the crowd. Old Testament, Isaiah, has a chapter about a vineyard. So as he's talking to scribes and Pharisees, they know the Old Testament. They know that the, the, the image of the vineyard is Isaiah chapter 5. It's a whole chapter image of the vineyard. So as he uses this image, the high priest would be keenly aware of what a vineyard is in the Old Testament, what it should be. Isaiah 5, 1 now let me sing, I love how it starts, my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful, do you get the idea that the word beloved is a key in this chapter? So the, God, God owns the vineyard, but God is also my beloved, right? And in the parable Jesus just told, verse 13, he used the term beloved too. He's mirroring Isaiah. 
And, and, and I think speaking very clearly, I think what ticks off is not just the parable Jesus told, but the way he uses Isaiah to make this point. This is the, this is the key to their anger. Uh, verse 2, Isaiah 5, verse 2. He dug it up, the vineyard, and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. This is a specific word for the good ones, the purple grapes, the, the awesome grapes. He built a tower in the midst and he made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. He gave people everything they needed to be fruitful. And he brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. This is still Isaiah. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, Tell me you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down the wall and it shall be trampled down. Notice that nothing happens to the vine. I just think this is interesting what Jesus does here. What happens is that the wall around the vineyard gets destroyed. The wall protecting the vineyard gets destroyed and the, and the vineyard gets trampled down. But it doesn't say anything about the vine. So who's the owner? Who's the vineyard? Isaiah tells us directly that, again, the Old Testament doesn't leave this up to our imagination. Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That little plot of land in the Middle East, that's God's vineyard. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. It doesn't say vine there. It's actually really a different word. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. The vineyard house of Israel, specifically the land on which the vine grows. It is not Israel. Israel then is not the vine itself, but the land that it got planted in. That God's plan for the universe is going to happen on that land. The choicest vine is planted in the vineyard. His pleasant plant, though, is a different word from vine. It's a more general term. Like, so the Jews are a planting, but they're not necessarily the vine with the good grapes. But they're a planting. They're a good thing that's happening. It's like we have a vineyard out here, and most vineyards have supplemental plants. In the spring, when you see the vines grow up, you're also underneath going to see asparagus growing up. That's a good plant. And it's a good plant because it helps feed the vineyard. So most vineyards, or whatever you call them, vinters, know this that there's a pleasant plant that you put with the vines that will help the vines. Um, Who's the owner? Easy. Uh, Isaiah tells us, the Lord of hosts. The word there is Jehovah, Yahweh. But verse 1 says that a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. It's an odd thing. And you could read the Old Testament and go, this has to be a mistake in the grammar. This has to be a misreading of it. But Jesus uses it like it's not a mistake. The Lord of hosts is the beloved. And he uses the word beloved in his parable and the Lord of hosts. So Jesus is both owner and son. Get this? This is one of those Trinity passages. Isaiah has the Lord and the Lord's beloved as the owner, almost like Isaiah made a mistake. There's two different identities. But Jesus is saying that they're the same person. So he ties this back to John the Baptist. I think this is just awesome. Um, Jesus is reminding everyone from three years ago, who's the beloved? We're told in Isaiah what everything else is, but we're not told who the beloved is. It's left open in Isaiah. But I want you to, I want you to be reminded of this. Matthew 3, 17 at the baptism, 
Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, what did God say from heaven in front of everybody? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So the definition of who the beloved comes, there were people in this crowd that were there at that baptism three and a half years ago. They recognized the voice from heaven and they heard this. God defined who owned the vineyard. Jesus did. So when they asked, when he asked them, is John from God or from heaven? They all believed God to the point where they would stone high priests if they disagreed because they heard a voice from heaven. This was a public proclamation. And that voice from heaven answered the question of Isaiah 5, which he tells a parable about and uses. Okay, if you don't think Jesus is the Messiah, this stuff would make you angry. He's playing games with your scriptures here because he's defining it. So was John from God or man in verse 4? Everybody knew the answer to this. John was from God because they heard God speak. And what did God say? Oh, he pointed at this carpenter and said, this is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased. He defined it. So even, even a few of, the, few of the priests were at the John, the, remember he called him a brood of vipers? Even some of the priests were there and remembered that he was called the beloved there. So this is reminding them that John was of God, that Jesus was baptized with God's intervention. Sometimes we don't remember what happened three and a half years ago. That God himself identified the beloved as the vineyard owner, which means, get this, who gave you this authority? Well, God did at the baptism. So he's, tell, he's answering their question with all of this. And I don't think high priests are stupid people. I think these are the educated people of this era. They know these connections. They get what he's doing here. And that's part of what enrages them. Israel was Jesus's property. He's claiming ownership of the vineyard, the land that they're standing on right now. And then there's the little tower that God's built. That's a nut. Some people think that's the temple, right? It's not, the point isn't the temple. The point is the vine. So, Jesus understands Isaiah. He references it more than any other one. How many times, Mike? Twelve times Jesus references Isaiah. Thank you very much. I knew he knew the answer to that. And that he's the beloved one by implication. All of this equals we're going to kill this guy. Enough of, we, he is doing dances with the scriptures that we can't keep up with anymore. He's got to go. Or, he just clearly answered the question of authority to anybody that wants to hear it. He is the beloved Lord of hosts. He is the, he is the, the deity made incarnate. That's just one of hundreds of links that we get when we study the word of God. Like, honestly, it's prophetic. It's beautiful. And, fo- and, and what's one of the biggest crimes in the world is people that doubt the, the, the authority of the word of God in our lives. It's beautiful what the Word of God does and the tie-ins we get. So the fact that he works into his prophecy that they're going to kill him too, um, he he calls out what they're going to do because he knows what's in their heart. So again, Jesus shows his authority through the ability to know and read people's hearts. Verse 16, he will come and destroy. So if he's right about what they're thinking in their hearts, he's also right about what's about to happen to them if they destroy him. Like, he is make, giving them every... I think he's doing this in love. He's giving the, the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, every chance in the world to repent and not go down this path that they're determined to go down. So if I think, I want to kill this guy, and this guy says, you want to kill me, and I'm like, how did you know that? And then he says, if you do kill me, God himself is going to destroy you. 
I would take that seriously because this guy just read my mind, right? So this is Jesus interacting with people in a way only Jesus could. The obvious parable Jesus gives them is fair warning of judgment that's coming and he's doing it before they actually do it. They have a chance to repent. They could humble themselves. They could not kill the beloved son of God, but they're going into this next few days knowing full well what they're doing. They just don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, but he's warned them. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. There should be an exclamation point. In the Greek, that's an emphatic. They're enraged, right? So there's no way. What you, you, nothing you're saying is there. Verse 15, the question is, what are they disagreeing with, right? So I, I can, I, I can and, and with my friends, the commentators, come up with four different things that possibly they're saying certainly not to. So are they arguing that the owner is not justified in taking care of his vineyard? I don't, you know, I don't know about that one, that he won't destroy the stewards. I mean, the, the parable is very clear. These stewards have murdered and the law says that murderers should be killed. So it's not that it's it's not that it's unjust. That's the first option that they're disagreeing with the parable itself, and that they that the owners shouldn't kill these people. It would be odd for scribes and Pharisees to argue with the clear law of God: murderers should be executed, right? So that's not likely. There was another clause there. It could be certainly not is a reaction to the entire parable, like the whole situation and everything you say. They just. Like, you know when people are really, really mad and they can't really argue with reason, they just argue with yelling? <laughs> it could just be that they're just like, we don't want to hear anything from you, Jesus. All of it. And their role as vine dressers, like, we're not the vine dressers. What are you doing? We're not the stewards of this. So, but if they do that, they're denying that Israel is the vineyard, which is clear in Isaiah 5. They'd be arguing with the word of God if they do that. See how the many directions Jesus has them wrapped in knots? So is it unjust? Probably not. They disagree with the law. Is it that they're not in those roles and that Israel isn't the vineyard? Then they'd be disagreeing with Isaiah. Number three, certainly not, could just be an emphatic response to Jesus saying that the vineyard's going to be given to other people. That Israel, the vineyard, is going to be given to other people. They'll own God's promise and inheritance. They'll be given God's blessings. And maybe they're just enraged at that last little piece there, that they're upset that Israel is going to be handed over to people that aren't Jewish. Right? Okay, here's a fourth one. These are all plausible. I think the first two are a little sketchy. Certainly not that Jesus fulfills Isaiah. Like it could be that they're just in, that him calling himself the son of God or the beloved. Verse 17 lends itself to this argument. Jesus is at least responding to this option when he responds to the Pharisees. That he is understanding that they're rejecting the cornerstone when they do this. So however, or it's just all four of these things. And at the end of the day, all that comes out of their mouth is certainly not. Just all of it, Jesus. So if that's the case, this is a compelling image of, G of God's view of us too. Think about this. If we've been handed the care of the vineyard, what's the expectation God has of the vine dressers? So given that they did kill Jesus and, and Jesus did destroy the temple and take away their sovereignty, like imagine Israel if they actually bowed to Jesus. Like, history went the way it did, but that means the vineyard's been given over to non-Jews, us. And for 2,000 years, it's been the job of the church and anyone that wants to follow Jesus to take care of the vineyard. Well, 
our duty then is to voluntarily step into the role of tending the vine. But if we do and we say we're here to tend the vine, Peter calls us a holy priesthood. We're here to do a few things with that vine. And again, the image of the vine is all over the Old Testament. Um, the role of the vine dressers was to take care of an ill-tended vine. It's wild. It should be tended to. Nahum 2.2, Joel 1.7. Aaron's rod bloomed and blossomed like on the vine, Genesis 40.10. And, and in Jeremiah 6.9, the vine is left to only remnants. A lot of the vine gets destroyed, according to Jeremiah. Ezekiel 17's image ends with the vine growing outside the vineyard, like the church has grown. Again, he can destroy the wall and the things protecting the Jewish people, but the vine itself is what God's concerned with. So you guys know where I'm going with this. Uh, this is a great Bible study, by the way. And if you want to go back and pause on the recording and get all those verses, study the vine through the Old Testament. It's a great image throughout. So in other words, for people trained in the word as these priests were, no matter what day of cemetery they slept through, what class they slept through, it's all over in the prophecies. They would have heard this stuff when they went to cemetery, seminary. Same thing. If Israel is the vineyard, what's the vine itself? Who is the vine? That's the, th that's the other piece. We didn't know who the beloved was in Isaiah. We don't know who the vine is. But then John adds this in his gospel, John 15, 5. You guys know this verse. I am the vine. Jesus made it very clear. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So, Jesus called himself the vine. Who owns the vineyard? Jesus owns the vineyard. Who's the beloved? Jesus is the beloved. Who's the vine? Jesus is the vine. All three. One, two, three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Israel is only as fruitful as the remnant that abides in Jesus, but God owns it all. The vineyard, Israel, saw the planting of Jesus, but it grows well beyond that vineyard. God is patient and he gives attempt after attempt after attempt to these stewards to do it right, and they have failed. He gave them his relationship with Abraham. He gave them his law with Moses. He gave them land with Joshua. He gave them a human king because they asked for it with David. He gave them judges to guide. He, all of these things, and ultimately he had to send them off to Babylon. Then he gave them another chance after Babylon. And they built the second temple to try one more time. And they started out on the right foot with every one of those eras. But at this point, Jesus is finally sending his son to come back and guide them in this. And God has every right to punish the rebellious servants. So they kill his son. We're now in the last era of this parable. So we'll keep, we'll keep going here. Verse 17 in our chapter. Then he looked at them and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Again, verse 19 is where I, I'm like, they get what he's doing here. They, and, and Luke points that out. They knew full well what was going on. Luke... Um, in, in what we see here in the stone the builders rejected, we're getting another line from Psalm 118, which they sang as they came up into the city. Um, verse 17 gives us 
another line of that psalm. Um, they were just singing this as he came into the city. And he's repeating a line that everybody in the crowd would know because it's like a Christmas carol. They know the lines to these songs. And the line here, it's, and, and again, the way Jesus puts this, verse 17, what then is this? It's almost like he's like, wow, what just happened? Like there's the flesh part of Jesus where these, they do this thing where they're upset with him and they're angry with him. And he tells them that he's the Messiah. He's the beloved of the vineyard. And then he's just like, man, look at what just happened, you guys. The stone that the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. You guys just rejected me. You're, you're fulfilling prophecy. Look, you just fulfilled one. It's like he's still trying to convince them. Look at what just happened. The rock or the stone, okay, let me say this too. I'm only going to give you a couple. The rock or the stone is another great Old Testament Bible. It's like Jesus is given a master class on Old Testament usage here. So you go back through the Old Testament, look at every occasion where they talk about a rock or a stone, and Jesus is saying he's the stone that the builders rejected. So you look at these and, and everything starts to fit. Um, 1 Corinthians 10 does this kind of Old Testament Bible study. The disciples are learning from Jesus right now. All that were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. The way Paul applies the Old Testament is that they're physical images of a spiritual reality. And it's how we study the Old Testament too. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. How did Paul, how did Paul get that? Because Jesus said he was the cornerstone. So again, we don't, we don't translate prophecy with what we think or what we dream up or what weird kind of philosophy we heard on YouTube. We translate prophecy by the tools the Bible gives us to translate it. When we see the rock of salvation, Jesus called himself the rock of the salvation. Paul called him that too. The rock will shatter the nations of this earth made by humans and they'll confound the people in high places. Daniel chapter 2 has the dream of the big statue with all the different parts. What wrecks, this, what, what wrecks the human empires of this world? For as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The cornerstone is a key thing in building and construction. In the ancient world, like today we just pull out our digital tools and everything's level and plumb and we can make things straight. But back then to set the cornerstone was a major project. It was, it was one of the hardest parts of the building because the cornerstone has to not only be level, it has to be square to where the building is going to lie and it has to be plumb. So in three different directions, it has to be perfect. One, two, three. And if any of it's off, the whole building's going to be off and the quality of the building is, is faulty. If Jesus is the cornerstone, he has to be set in all three directions. It has to be perfect. And so he, again, he adds this aspect to what Paul is saying, which supports the judgment aspect of the vineyard. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. Actually, like verse 18, it's like, okay, these are both bad, aren't they? When you first read it, like it's not good to be broken. But the way Jesus taught us, like, Actually, the thing that needs to break is our own pride, right? And, and for those that fall on the stone, it's not that they're tripping and falling. It's that they're falling on their face in worship to that stone. And those that fall before Jesus have to admit that Jesus knows better than we do how to live our lives. You have to admit that I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, that's the word fall. I've fallen short. And those that fall short before the spiritual throne of God... Their pride is broken, and those people um, 
are ready to be healed. Like, so the way Jesus says this in verse 18, to fall on the stone and be broken is actually a positive. That's why the word but on whomever it falls, and then we get a negative. So we either fall on the cornerstone or the cornerstone falls on us. And there's no way to frame that as good, right? The cornerstones were big, massive, multi-ton bricks for larger buildings. Um, whoever On whomever it falls, the stone falls on them. That's judgment. That's not good. And when the owner returns, who is the stone, they're going to be ground to dust. They knew he. They see it all. Again, the Pharisees aren't dumb. Not only is Jesus showing that they have no authority, he's doing it with absolute mastery of Old Testament imagery. And he's laying this out. The fact is they can't take it. They can't take this kind of treatment because they've never really owned the vineyard. As priests and, and Pharisees and whatever, they're not relying on the power of God to do their teaching. They're relying on themselves. So when you're, they're face-to-face -face with the Son of God, they simply recognize they've never had mastery of the Old Testament like Jesus does. And, and, and I think all of us would be in that place, but some of us, we're like, yeah, that's cool. Jesus is the Son of God. Of course we don't have that mastery. But for them, this is a pride thing. So when they kill him, judgment is going to follow. I think the only thing we miss in this is the tone. I, I still think the tone here is love. It is loving to warn them what's coming. So in verse 20, they, so they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Again, the focus of Luke here is the authority. There's earthly authority and there's heavenly authority. That's how Jesus dealt with their question. Who gave you this authority? And he he's defines a different kind of authority structure. And he's, and he's doing this. So the, the idea that they're pretending to be righteous, uh, wow, that just kind of makes me sad. Who would fake like they're righteous just to go after righteous people? Who would do that? And the, to seize on his words, today we call this trolling. It's the comment section on all social media. They're just looking for one turn of phrase they can pounce on. You ever met those people? Aha, aha, I got you. You said this thing. And you're just like, oh my goodness. And then how do you even react to that sort of thing? In verse 21, well, by the way, verse 20, there is no reaction from Jesus. He just doesn't, not even a line from how Jesus responds. Just Luke acknowledging that this is now what's happening. Verse 21, then they asked him saying, teacher, again, to call Jesus teacher and not be willing to learn, that's using his name in vain. You're, you're taking up the name of Jesus, you're calling him God, you're pretending to be righteous, you're taking up the name of God in vain. That's actually one of the Ten Commandments that they're breaking. Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Okay, first of all, this setup is what I call flattery, right? Flattery is a, a, one of those flags that people will try to lure you in and they'll say things like, I just have a question. And I, I know you're a rational, good, decent thinking person. I know you're a good person. I'm just curious why you think Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Right? And, 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 and again, this, this way in which they do it, they say a few things that are true and they're trying to agree with what the crowd thinks of Jesus. He teaches right. So he's a right teacher. He doesn't have favorites. He doesn't do. He isn't, doesn't have partiality. And three, he points them to God in truth. So everything he's doing points people to, to the Lord. So while this is true, it's also flattery because we know from verse twenty they don't believe any of this. 
So they're warming up to someone in order to put them off their guard so that they can catch him and kill him. And this is, here's the problem with this strategy from the enemy, and, and I hope this is encouraging to you. For a righteous person, we don't have a guard up. So if you flatter us to try to get our guard down, you're, you're, there's no guard to start with. So it's an ineffective strategy with the Christian. By the way, for some of these people, that makes, that makes us even more irritating to them. Because they, they believe you can't be righteous, so this righteous person must be a hypocrite. They assume you're a hypocrite. This is why the media loves stories about pastors that get caught in sin. See, look here, here's another one of you hypocrites. We just got to see this hypocrite. What they don't acknowledge is thousands of godly people across the country living out their faith. They don't put that on the media. They just love when they find money in the bathroom walls. You know, that, that's the news story. But you never see a news story on, here's a pastor that taught the word of God faithfully for 40 years and died. That's not a story. But man, that's for me, that's the story. I want to know those people. Law here, by the way, when they talk about him, the word lawful in verse 22 is, is not civic Roman law that they're talking about. That's very clear. They're talking about the Old Testament law. Uh, similar in the structure of Jesus' question. They say in verse 22, they, they ask a binary. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So Jesus did this to them, right? He said, was John the Baptist from God or not from God? Heavenly authority or earthly authority? But here they're trying to ask a similar question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not pay taxes to Caesar? The problem is they're questioning earthly authority with earthly authority. They're just not seeing what Jesus did in that last question. So, so Jesus has got them from the start because he's thinking differently about it. You don't have to be crafty to answer questions like this. If you go into everything and think there is an earthly kingdom and earthly authority and there is heavenly kingdom and heavenly authority, it's very in, in, easy to answer most apologetic questions. It's a very simple, basic approach. Well, that's God's territory. Well, that's Earth's territory. So should there be these laws or this thing or should we argue about whatever's on Fox News or CNN? I don't know. That's earthly stuff. But heavenly stuff's over here and I'm going to follow heavenly law and commands. That's my, that's my focus is over here. And most of those things, it, it becomes a very like, like people crossing in the winds. You ever been in those discussions? You're talking but they're not hearing you at all? And, and, and 22 shows that Jesus is in that kind of discussion. Verse 23, he perceived their craftiness. Folks, that's half the battle. Know when somebody's sincere or when they're trying to get you. And if they're trying to get you in some sort of theological dialogue, be, be cautious in that situation, which is the warning at the end of the chapter. And he says to them, why do you test me? I love that he just brings it out in the open. thing with cockroaches, you turn on the light, they all run. Right? And he just turns on the light. You're trying to catch me. And just to say that sets it up so the crowd can hear what's going on here. You don't think, he, he, he's not letting them get away with verse 21. You're calling me a good teacher. You're calling me that I, you're saying all these nice things about me, but you're just trying to test me. Why are you doing that? Who do you think you are? So before getting into it, he points out the testing and their motives and the crowd gets to see it. it, it uh, you know, why do you care what I think is, is probably the tone of Jesus' thing. You're already rejecting me. You already want to kill me. Why does it matter to you what I think about taxes? Why are you trying to test me? So here's the test. 
you've heard this before. If he says that it's lawful, the crowd's going to be upset. They hate Roman rule. They hate tax collectors. We already know that from Luke. If he says it's not lawful, verse 20, they can hand him over as a rebel against the Roman Empire and they can get him killed. So this is what they're, what they're doing. He's, he's teaching insurrection. Frankly, it's weird how the enemy loves to accuse people of insurrection. Like we saw that in Ezra too, right? They're an insurrectionist. They're trying to fight Persian Empire. And we see that all over. This is what the enemy does. They take people that they feel threatened by and they try to get the government authority to take them down. So Jesus sees past the enemy's binary either-or conundrum and he sees it as God's law versus Roman law, or two different kingdoms. And so here's how he answers, verse 24. Show me a denarius. I love this. This is so layered and so, like, Jesus is just perfect. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We talked about this in Matthew too. The word render, apotomy, is to give away or return something back to someone, to recompense or restore who owns it. Why are you holding a Roman denarius? You don't want to pay taxes, but you're holding their money. Look at what he did there. You're the hypocrite. You know, honestly, you want to call him an insurrectionist? Like, are you ready to be called an insurrectionist? Because this is, they're using Rome right now. They're going to use Roman authority to do something they don't have the guts to do themselves. So translated, that render word is to give something back. Um, if you want to look at the, 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 in fact, when we look at this in Luke, Luke 4.20, Luke 9.42, that word is actually translated to give back to someone, to return it to them. Here it's render, which I think we lose some of that meaning. It also can mean in Luke 7.42, it can be translated to repay somebody a debt. So when you use American dollars, you're borrowing something the government has given you. And to understand that you're enjoying the benefits of that country's economy and resources and how earthly authority have set up those sorts of things. So if you're going to enjoy the benefits of a government, you should also pay the taxes to that government. It makes total sense but it's not what they wanted him to do here. It comes with the implication, the word render, that it's not their coin that they're holding. They didn't make it, and they're borrowing it. Luke chooses the word in Acts a number of times in chapter 4, this idea of rendering, to give something back. The way Luke frames this in the book of Acts in chapter 4 is that you give everything back to God. God owns all of it. And all we do when we serve God, when we worship God, when we learn God's word, when we tithe, when we praise, when we pray, we're just giving back to God the things that he owns. And we're doing it with a joyful heart. Again, Acts chapter 4 is a great Bible study to look at the concept of rendering. Here, Luke's using it in terms of giving back the government things that belong to them. I love the answer to this question. They have to point out a coin, and let's look at the, I mentioned this with Matthew too. What's inscribed on a, a Roman denarius in the first century is Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. That's what's written on this coin. It says who owns the coin on the coin. The image of Caesar that's on the coin has the statement of who is the image and who's the image bearer of it. By the way, on this coin, it says divine Augustus, meaning that he's God or a God in the Roman pantheon. So technically, this is an image of a divine being that they have in their pocket. What do the Ten Commandments say about images? And should images be anywhere near the temple? 
They, no graven images. So to bring this coin into the temple courtyard is to bring a false image before God. Again, he's catching them and breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Most, most Jewish people should have emptied their pockets and got all of those coins out of their pockets before they ever walked into the temple courtyard. It shouldn't even be there. So by having one, they admit they're using Roman coins, the benefit of rule, but they're also breaking God's law. Sam points out it's actually two of God's laws, God's things. And he just got done saying, give to God the things that are God's, right? So that coin doesn't belong to God, but the, the ore and the metal does if you read the book of Acts. Who asked not to have any false gods before him, no graven images, so they're referring to human law or godly law about this. Jesus is talking about God's law. There's two kingdoms here. If they stay in their domain, there's no issues. But if they start crossing in the domain of God's, there becomes issues. God had no problem with the Egyptians housing the Jews for hundreds of years. It's when the Egyptians said you can't go worship that he got them the heck out of there. Same thing with the Babylonian Persians. He had no problem having his people live under a, another secular civic government. It's when that government says you can't do the things of God the way God tells you to do them, that's when God starts to do miracles. This is why I get so excited when the government tells us we can't meet. I love this. Let's play. Let's see how this works. I want to see God at work. Um, so there's the, give to God the things that are God's. There's this a mic drop effect here for Jesus, right? Just boom. There would probably be crickets after he says this. The coin is borrowed also ties back to the story of the vineyard. Just let me give you another layer on this. They're stewards of the money. So to render it back means it does, they don't own it. So he's calling them stewards, which ties back to the, the vineyard story too. So to give God what is God's means to give him his vineyard back. Like if you tie this whole chapter together, like give to God what belongs to God, this vineyard doesn't belong to you. Give it back. So when he's saying these things, uh, he is absolutely picking a fight with them, but he's doing it in a way only God knows how to do by using the word of God to state truth. And because they've twisted the truth, that puts them in conflict with the word of God. It's pretty impressive that he brings this issue back to ownership and the parable he just told. It's not about taxes. It's about authority and ownership. Who owns the coin? What are you doing with the coin? This is why they marvel at him. Verse 26, they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. They just can't, they don't even know how to handle this guy. Everything they say to challenge him, he turns it around and makes it about their ownership and their lack of authority, that they don't have a right to do these things. Again, when Luke presents this, he presents it, in, I think, a little more confrontational than Matthew does. Matthew softens this a little bit, didn't he? When we went through Matthew? But Luke is showing us the, why they hated him so much they wanted to kill him. They marveled. Uh, frankly, the word marvel, I love this. I marvel too. Don't you read this and just think, wow, Jesus. Jesus, almighty God. The clarity of Jesus Christ, it is a marvel. The way he uses words here, he makes what seems so hard seem so simple. And again, the framework is God owns this. Humans own this. It's very, and at the end of the day, humans don't own anything. And the way he makes unclear paths straight, he makes the crooked ways straight. And I marvel at that. I think it's a miracle. 
doctrines that used to harden us, as, as you get into the Word of God, they just seem silly at this point. The things I bickered with my wife about when I was trying to figure all this out, I look back at those and I think, man, that was silly of me. That was silly. I should have been in the Word. Fear God first. Honor any legitimate governments that are there by God's decree. And, and as long as they allow us to praise and worship our God, God just doesn't care about who's in authority. So it's so basic and it's so simple and it's common sense. It's biblical. Genesis 9.3, for in the image of God, he made man. This is a piece of this too. Caesar can keep his coins. God gets to keep his people. He gets our hearts and our coin says, if there's a coin on the image that we are, our coin says Jesus Christ, son of the divine God. And it is not a Roman coin that you are. You are a God coin. So we render ourselves back to him. They marvel at the layer in which Jesus is saying this and they're just stopping. Wait, did he just bring this back to the vineyard? Wait, did he just insult us? Like, what is he doing here? And, and again, I, I think the overtone of the whole chapter is he loves these people. He wants them to get it. So he's getting clearer and clearer, not because he wants a fight, because he wants them to come home. Give to God what is God's. How much clearer can it be? Give God your heart. So he sets the boundaries of civic law, honoring it. There are rights. There is authority. It's part of the reason why in America we put something different on our coins. You guys know what we put on our coins, right? In God we trust. In God we trust. Different kind of government. And e pluribus unum, which in the Latin means out of many, one. We're of one heart. We're of one mind. That's part of what America is. So what do you want to do if you want to attack America? Make us divided. Divide America. That's the way to beat us. It establishes heaven and earth and kingdoms, and the people marvel at the profundity of this answer. But they look at what they do with it. Luke 23, 2. I just want to flash forward a little bit. You just heard what Jesus said. In Luke 23, 2, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Did he say that? They just lie about it because they can't understand how to catch him. They have to make things up. Jesus actually just said to honor Caesar, but they in three chapters, they're just going to completely flip that and lie. So Luke is showing us the actual conversation. And to be warning, be careful of gossip. Your discussions with these kinds of insincere people, they're just going to walk away and lie about you. They're going to just make stuff up. They don't need you to actually say something. People get so worried. What if I say something wrong? What if I twist it? No, the Holy Spirit's in you. You're fine. And at the end of the day, they're going to lie and make up stuff about you anyways. So get over it. Then you get the Sadducees. In Matthew, we talked about the difference. Sadducees are what I, today, we would call them leftists. They don't believe in anything. Um, they give them an eschatological question, which is about end times. But we should know about them that as They've woven their way into Jewish culture. They're extremely wealthy. They are the teachers at the colleges, the Sadducees. We would call them professors, right? They're educated people. And one of the common beliefs of the Sadducees as a group is that there is no spiritual world. They only accept the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. They don't believe there's anything miraculous. They believe all those passages are mistaken. They don't believe that we have a soul. There's nothing supernatural. There's no heaven. There's no hell. There's no angels. 
There's no miracles and there's no spiritual world. We are, we are goo that went through the zoo and now that's you. That's what we are. And this is the Sadducees as a movement. They don't believe in any of that stuff is true. So they come to him. And Luke just tells us that really quickly. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection, they don't believe any of this stuff. They came to him and asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And now there were seven brothers and they do not have seven brides. And the first took a wife and died without children. And then the second took her as a wife and he died childless. And then the third took her and in like manner, all the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, here's the catch question. Know this about the Sadducees. This kind of scholarship is what I would call bumper sticker scholarship. They, they, they can do entire books, but it comes down to a bumper sticker thought. And this would have been something they whipped out on everybody that believed that there's a spiritual world. They would have thrown this question out. This is like their stock go-to. They put it on the bumper sticker of their car and they drive around town like they just owned everybody. Right? We gotcha. Therefore, verse 33, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. Aha, aha. What are you going to do now? Okay, how do you deal with these kinds of questions? So we saw Jesus dealt with insincere people simply by warning them. Don't be insincere. The most notable part of the question, frankly, is how ridiculous it is. Right? Just let's look at it for what it is. What a stupid question. And so logically... This is called testing the extremes or a hypothetical. If you have a belief that I can push to its edge and show you its fault, then the belief must be wrong. But to do this, I have to come up with a hypothetical. Well, hypothetically, what about in the cases of rape and incest? Like, let's push it to the extreme and test the thought that killing babies is wrong. Well, is it really wrong even when there's other wrongs involved? Let's contrast those things. And what they do in pushing the extreme is they conflate or confuse the issue. And then suddenly good, decent people that thought they had clarity of mind are like, well, I don't know. Seven people died and they all have the same wife. What happens in heaven? It's very confusing for your average person. So frankly, they're using actual law, Deuteronomy 25. This is a real law. And what they're skipping is that the, the Bible in the, in the Torah also provides a judicial system to watch over all of this earthly stuff. And again, the way Jesus deals with this is there's an earthly thing and there's a heavenly thing. And you're thinking earthly. And I'm not. I'm thinking heavenly. That's such a simple way to handle all of these challenges. I'm thinking heaven. You're thinking earth or hell. Right? But a judicial system would look over this on earth. But then in verse 33, they take it up to heaven. Okay, now what? So how can Jesus answer this question given that he's a human being and there's no such thing as heaven? Jesus hasn't been to heaven is what they're thinking. Now we know that's actually not true. So their point is made in the question, assuming there's no rational, plausible answer, they've already won the argument because they've set up a catchy question. The enemy loves these bumper sticker questions. They fit in their very small brains. And that's why they like them, is they don't have to think, they can just pop these out whenever they need to. Let me give you a few. If God loves the world, why is there evil in it? Huh? How did that happen? I prayed and God didn't answer. Huh? What's going on? What's wrong with you? What, I just left it. What kind of life will the baby have if the mother doesn't even want it? Huh? What do you think about that? 
They're not seeking God's truth. Do you hear the tone in these questions? They're all the same, same structure. If God's real, how does he get into every chimney on Christmas Eve, huh? How does he do that? And there are these insincere questions with preposterous premises to them. And so what they're trying to do is get you to try to answer a stupid question. Because when you answer stupid questions, what does that make you? Makes you stupid. Now you're playing the stupid game. And then they can ivory tower you to death once you start trying to answer. Well, that's problematic here, and that's fine. They just dismiss everything you say. doesn't matter how you answer this. The problem with liberal scholarship is the question is not on a foundational construct. It's on a human construct. And therefore, when they ask, where's the jamming point? Uh, or, or, or when they ask a question like, well, let's just use jam. Where's the jam? And you can't answer it? It doesn't mean there isn't jam in the universe. Right? Just because you can't answer a question. And where's the jam is not an actual question. It's not questioning the jam's existence. It's questioning your ability to know its existence. That's what they're doing to Jesus. What is this like in heaven, Jesus? Thinking he doesn't have the ability to know what heaven is. So whatever he says becomes nonsensical. And I hope, I hope, I think this is what Luke hopes too. We get a whole chapter on this so that we can know the difference. We're not obligated to take the bait. That's the lesson. You're not, you don't have to answer to these ridiculous questions. Notice that Jesus never answers the question of verse 32. He never answers it. He just skips it. What he's thinking in his head, maybe in the flesh, I think he's God, he knew this was going to happen beforehand. Wouldn't it be nice if we knew every conversation before we got into it? That'd be great. But I think in the flesh, he's, he, all he's thinking is they're asking, an earth, they're asking a question with an earthly understanding, and I need to point them to a heavenly understanding. I need to point them to Jesus. So, so how do I do that? Verse 34, Jesus answers and says to them, again, he doesn't answer the question, but he does explain heaven. The sons of this age, the earthly age, marry and are given in marriage. That's true. Verse 35, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry or are given in marriage. Hmm. Nor can they die anymore, for they're equal to the angels who are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus explains to them, you know what, guys? There is an afterlife. And Luke told us they don't believe in that, verse 27. But there is an afterlife. Don't you know? And it's not about earthly covenants of marriage, and it's not about death. You see how he brings in death there, life and death? It's essentially about a different age of existence. What we know now is not what we're going to know in heaven. How we act now is not how we're going to act in heaven. There's no judicial system in heaven because in heaven Jesus reigns. <laughs> and it's not just his opinion. He points to the word of God. He says humans will be equal to angels in terms of the fact that they won't die anymore. Right? We're not going to die in heaven. We're eternal in nature. So this takes a shot at the Sadducees' disbelief in the resurrection, takes a shot at their disbelief in heaven. It also brings in the term of angels. They don't believe there's angels, right? So he, uh, Jesus gives a layered response here, but he's, re he's responding to all of Sadduceeism. Wouldn't it be great if every time somebody gives you a gotcha question, you re just respond to the world at whole? You know what? This world is not of Christ's world. And what you're saying is true of this world but it's not true of the heavenly or the spiritual world. That's what you don't understand. You should read the word of God. You should go to Jesus. You should come to, to Bible study with me. Verse 37, but even Moses, again, he points to the word. 
But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that, there, that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and all live for him. Either you live for him or you don't. Either you're a servant at the vineyard or you're not. This is either you are broken on the cornerstone or you are crushed to powder by the cornerstone, but the cornerstone exists. Know it. This is a careful treatment of the Old Testament. Uh, what, uh, and here's what I know. This is why we study the Old Testament like this. When God takes this passage in verse 37, I'd argue most people read that passage and they never think about heaven or the, or the existence of reality. Jesus is noticing every word of the Old Testament as though it's intentional. And so we treat the Old Testament the same way because we're seeing, when he says the God of Abraham, it's in the present tense, meaning Jesus actually looked the, at the tenses of words. So that's why we press hard on the Old Testament because Jesus did. And so when he's looking at the tense of the word and it means Abraham's still around, he's still a being, he's the God of Abraham, and, and he's reading that going, okay, the tense of this word means Abraham actually exists and there's meaning and implication behind every word that's in the Torah. There's not a word that's out of place. That Isaiah passage we just dealt with, that wasn't out of place that the Lord owns the vineyard and the beloved owns the vineyard. That wasn't a mistake. So he uses the Torah to answer the Sadducees that only accept the Torah. Okay, Torah's got everything you need. Let's, let's go from there. Luke had already talked about the rich man caring about the brothers in 16, 20, verse, chapter 16, verse 27. Here's what we know about heaven from Luke's teach, take on Jesus is that that rich man in heaven still knew who his brothers were. So the, the idea of not giving and taking in marriage, like th that won't happen, but our spouses and our family will still be recognizable in heaven. He's already taught that to sincere followers. And they're still special. And this person, even though he's in hell, still cares about the well-being of his brothers. It's not that we won't know each other in heaven. It's that we won't die. So you won't have this problem of death. However, the joy of heaven will surpass any images or shadows or covenants that we have on this earthly realm because heaven's just going to be a completely different focus for us. This question, this ridiculous question, simply won't matter anymore when we're in heaven. Also, it's hypothetical. It hasn't actually happened. Like, there's no argument that this has occurred, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 12, his disciples pick up on this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know as I am, as also am known. Heaven's just different. It's a whole different level than what we understand. It's better and it's beyond us. Our past loved ones are not dead in Christ. They live and they wait and they know who we are and they have concern for us. This is also taught. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. We run a race because we got a heavenly host watching what we do. Verse 39 Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, You've spoken well. I actually think Jesus wins some of them over right there. Not all of them, but some of them are like, that was, wow, that was good stuff. Holy moly, carpenter man. That was insightful. Look at how you look. You're right. He does refer to Abraham as alive. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. I'm done going against Jesus directly. 
Luke even points out that there's a respect that Jesus gains. Jesus can handle the debates of his age. And you know what? Through the Holy Spirit, he can handle the debates of our age too. There's no conundrum that this world can concoct that hasn't already been around for a long time. And he's, he's been doing it. Likewise, the truth of God can be pressed, tested, pushed into, and it can solve any debate of our age. A living God has living followers, seen and unseen. There is a heaven. Look to Jesus. Then we'll wrap up the chapter here. And then he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Again, Jesus is, hey, you guys, it's all over the Old Testament. Let me give you another example. This isn't a mistaken wording in Psalm 110. It's truth. And so you explain to me how David calls his son a Lord. It doesn't, you guys know it doesn't work that way, right? The son is always seen as a, an, an, an inheritor of the father. The father is always the greater in Jewish thinking. So just this idea that Jesus presses into that and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord and Master. Well, how can David's son be his Lord? How does that even work? And it works in this way. Jesus is both the branch and the root. He's both. It wasn't a mistake. How does a father serve a son? Easy. The throne of David is earthly authority, but the fatherhood of God is heavenly authority. They're two different worlds. So he can be one in one world and one in the other world. And this is what he's teaching these guys about authority. You guys are thinking heavenly authority and where it comes from, and you're going to serve me up to the Romans and they're going to kill me, but that's just the earthly authority. It's so far beneath what I'm talking about. I'm talking about heavenly authority. And in heavenly authority, I'm the cornerstone, baby. I own the vineyard. I'm the Messiah. I'm God himself. And you don't understand. You can kill this body, but you can't kill me. And so beware the scribes, verse 46. There it is. Don't hate them. Don't challenge them. Don't argue with them. The word there is to be wary of them. Know who they are. Here's the other thing. I think there's some scribes that are good. We just saw that in the last verse. Some of them are like, dang. And they humble themselves under Jesus' teaching. It doesn't say get rid of scribes, erase the trade. It says don't take everything they say as gospel. And I would encourage you that about even with me. Don't take everything I say as the word of God. It's not, and I'll make mistakes. You guys know that. But take the word of God as though it is worthy of your attention. Read it for yourself. Call me out on my garbage. That's why we do Q&A after every teaching. If I miss something or I, I don't want to miss something, that's why I do a Q&A is I'm not that confident. <laughs> I want you to understand the word of God and I want me to get out of the way. Test every scribe that way. Every teacher, be wary of them. Especially as those, those teachers get popular. Then really be wary of them because power corrupts. Then in the hearing of all the people, again, he's teaching everybody, he said to his disciples, those that are sincerely following him, Beware the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Wow. 
All right, you could do a whole sermon series on all these. I think it's kind of negative. I'm going to just treat them all generally as one thing. Jesus lays out the clear violations of leisure, vanity, posturing, assumption, pride, greed, and money. All of them. And he does it in a sentence or two. You guys, watch out for this stuff. This is stuff of this kingdom, of the world. And it feels great. Um, teachers in this era didn't take pay just so you understand the widow's thing. They, did, they didn't as, uh, accept payment in any way, but they got very good at taking gifts. So the scribes and Pharisees would take gifts. Who is the most generous gift-giving population on planet Earth? Widows with a lot of money. And if you come in and you give them the time of day and you talk with them and you're their friend, their hearts are so golden that they just, they're happy to give to the ministry. Let's give to thing that, things that matter. But you got people who just take advantage of that and they eat up widows' houses. Um, and then the idea of the pretense, the long prayers. For, you know, obviously I could do the first century thing. They had big elaborate memorized prayers that they would do that made them sound really holy. And... Jesus himself is saying, folks, that's a pretty big red flag. If someone has to sound holy to you, they're probably not. So watch out for that. He doesn't say to not prayer. I, I just, let's not go the other direction. He doesn't say to not do long prayers. In fact, he, he went and prayed and fasted for 40 days. That's a pretty long prayer. So he's not saying don't pray or don't do long prayers. He's saying the pretense of making a long prayer. That when we go around and we do our prayer, I'm going to be super fancy so you think I'm really holy. But deep down, I just want the widow's money. There's some sincere prayers. There's some insincere prayers. When people care more about themselves than others, be wary of those people. Be awake to it. doesn't mean that you can't have prima donnas in the church. God bless them. But be wary of them. And don't listen to that. Now, generally take everything they say with a grain of salt and look to Jesus as your authority, not verse 46. These are not your authority. In the heavenly world, Jesus is our authority. Generally, God doesn't want us to dress up for him. He doesn't want us to be popular. I'm just flipping each of these. He doesn't need us to be seen as hot shots in the church. God doesn't want us to be elevated at the feast First in line, that's not important to God. It's a little important to me, but you know. He doesn't need us to be greedy or to take advantage of people. That's not what he's looking for. God wants our hearts to be broken to this world on the cornerstone to be restored into a heavenly world. That's what he wants. You know? If you've never prayed for forgiveness, if you've never felt like you've been broken on the cornerstone, that Jesus himself deserved you to come to him and say, I worship you, Jesus, say that prayer. It's a really short and simple prayer. That's the only prayer that you need to be in fellowship with your Lord and Savior. Lord, I've sinned. I've fallen short. Have mercy on me, a sinner, Lord, and take me into your own. Super simple prayer. Nothing fancy, long, or elaborate about it. And beyond there, every prayer is simply a conversation. Beware of the scribes and Pharisees. And I hope you got a little bit on how to deal with scribes and Pharisees as we look at Jesus today. Let's say a prayer. I'll try to make it short and succinct. Dear Lord, we come before you as your servants, brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we have nothing to offer you but our hearts that you gave us and you knit together for us. But Lord, we give them to you freely. We voluntarily come before you to study your word, to sing your praises, to fellowship in your name, and to pray. 
Lord, we just lift it all up to you. Help us to do it without pretense, without a show, without elaboration, Lord, but to just come to you sincerely because we need you. Lord, we go through our week and we screw up in so many ways. Lord, we need you in every way. Be with us. Lord, put in an anointing on us. May your Holy Spirit be upon the people in this room today. May you bless them. May they go out this week with just the blessing of your Holy Spirit, fearless, without worrying about what people think, uh, but Lord, to be wholly devoted to you and to just share the joy of the Lord with everyone they meet. Lord, help us to share the gospel, the good news. Anybody can be part of the kingdom and to, to share to people that great, amazing news. Lord, help us to have um, a wariness about people that pretend to be righteous. And Lord, we know that those people will show up, persistently come around. But Lord, help us to have grace like, like you did. Lord, help us to offer them an invitation, a warning, a rebuke, but also an invitation. And Lord, may they come before you and see and marvel at you like we do. In Jesus' name, amen. 